What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Nick Majuli is the author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. He's also the Chief Operating Officer at Ritzholt Wealth. Nick and I had a great conversation. In it, we talk about why maybe you shouldn't actually max out your 401k. Why, when you're born, may be more important than any investment decision you make. And Nick breaks down a number of other data points that will surprise you and educate you. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nick, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by FTX US. FTX.US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. You can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees either. FTX.US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. Download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP to earn these free crypto on every trade over $10. The more you trade, the more you earn. Go download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP. Today's episode is brought to you by Brave. Brave Wallet is the first secure crypto wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. No extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage NFTs, even connect other wallets and dApps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Again, go download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Today's episode is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artists K. Flay, Mo, Royal, and The Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Again, that's b.tc slash conference to learn more. Ticket prices increase on January 14th. Use promo code POMP for 10% off, and I will see you in Miami. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And Nick is here with us now. So Nick, how are you? Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How do I pronounce your last name? 
It's a Majuli. The, the two G's like the Giuliani sound. It's the same sort of J sound. So, so Majuli. So, so, so you'll laugh at this. My last name is Pompliano. No one ever gets it right, which means that I can shamelessly ask folks, how do you pronounce your name? Because uh, nobody gets my name right either, right? So we're, we're all in the same boat. Yeah, well, I know. It's the Italians out here. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, um, let, let's maybe just start with like your perspective on uh, personal finance and on financial markets. I think what's very interesting about you is that you take a daily data-driven approach. And there's a whole bunch of things that most people, I would say, uh, hold as truth or hold as these like uh, uh, religious almost uh, perspectives on financial markets. And you've been able to time and again, either disprove or kind of shed further light on why maybe it's not completely uh, the only way to think about it. And so what is your process? Like, do you find things people say and then go look at the data? Do you start with the data and then come to conclusions and, and then compare them? Like, what's that process look like? Honestly, it's a little bit of both. Sometimes I just like, I'm like, you know what, why don't we actually check this? Is this actually true? For example, one of the big points out there is like, oh, you should max out your 401k. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's see, like how much of actual benefit do you get from maxing from going like above the match, right? And then I see like, oh, you're getting like 70 bips a year, 0.7%. Most 401k plans are something like 50 bips in fees. So really after like the all-in fees, you're getting 20 bips a year to lock up your capital till you're 60. And I'm like, is that really worth it? Like 20 bips, is that worth it? And so like, once you start to question just like a lot of the things that we, it's kind of like the Elon Musk type of idea going back to first principles. Like, I love that idea because it's like, We've been told so many things, like basically, you know, I would say 10 out of 10 personal finance experts will tell you to max out your 401k. But if you actually, when I run the numbers, I'm like, uh, I'm not sure that's the best decision for everybody. So it's just kind of going back to first principles and saying like, what's actually true, what's not true, right? Versus what the media tells us, right? So go back to this for a second, because I think this first, let's just start off real hot. This violates every single thing anyone's ever been told by a financial uh, advisor, which is uh, they do get the advice, max out all of your uh, retirement. Um, and your argument from the data is that there's only a 0.7% advantage every year from doing that. What, explain what that means. Like, Where do you get the 0.7% uh, a year from? So that that particular analysis, I'm comparing a Roth 401k to just like having that money in a brokerage account and just managing it well. Like you're not buying in and out all the time. You're just like buying and hold over a long period. And so you're basically avoiding capital gains. That's the one thing. If you, that 15% capital gains compounded over a lifetime, that's going to end up being like 0.7% a year annualized, right? That's the difference we're getting. Now, technically you're like, well, what if I use a traditional or a versus Roth? There's a, it gets a little bit more convoluted there, but like no matter what, you're going to have to pay income tax. We know that like at some point, you either pay it at the beginning with a Roth or you pay it later with a traditional, right? When you're in retirement. So assuming those rates are the same, they won't be necessarily depending on a lot of factors, but let's assume those are the same. The only thing I care about is the capital gains tax, which is the second tax, which is what you avoid by having a 401k versus having it in like a brokerage account, a taxable account. So I'm just like looking at that difference and I'm saying like, how big is that? Like if I took a, took, put the same amount of money in every year and did that for like 30 or 40 years. And I said, look at the end, like how much more money do I have? And like that difference. And that difference is about like 0.7% compounded, you know, all else equal, but that's assuming no difference in fees. It's assuming the same funds. Everything is assumed to be the same, but once you actually look like the 401ks have fees and you have to like, you don't get to choose your investments. There's like already only a certain set of options you have. Right. So when you take all that into account, like it's the benefits even smaller in some cases. And some people have to pay 1% a year in their 401k, right? It's like, if you're paying over 70 bips in your funds, you're actually getting negative alpha for everything above the match, right? Like think about that. Like it's just, it's just not doable. So it doesn't make sense to me. So when you think about that and you, you find this data point, right? And you're like, hey, maybe this isn't exactly as clear cut as most people want it to make it seem. 
what do people go in and do where there is an advantage? Like, do you have data in terms of like from a retirement standpoint, are there specific structures that they should actually look at where the math seems to be a little bit more in their favor? Well, IRAs are much better because you can pick your investment options, right? So if like that alone, if you can pick your investment options, you can pick lower cost stuff. Now, if you have low cost stuff in your 401k, it's basically the same as an IRA. That's one piece of it. The other thing is like um, with the 401k, like you're putting that money in over time and like, because you can't pick the investment options, that's a piece of it that's a little annoying. The other thing people can do is like you can, if you manage it well in a brokerage account, like I don't know if people know this, but for example, and a single individual, you can pull out 40 something thousand dollars a year. If you have no other income, tax rate is zero, right? And then if you have like, even with the standard deduction, it's like 50, 50 grand a year and tax rate is zero on capital gains. If you have a couple, you can pull out a hundred grand a year and assuming you have no other income tax rate is zero. So like, think about that, like a brokerage account that's well managed, you can be pulling out hundred K a year with no tax. So in that case, like a 401k would be even worse. Right. So like, that's kind of the process I go through. I'm like looking at this and I'm saying like, is this, does this make the most sense for people? Yes or no. And so that really depends, right. In certain cases, it can also make sense. Like, for example, if you're in a high tax state now and you know, you're going to be in a low tax state in retirement, it does make sense to probably max because you're going to be avoiding those in a pre-tax um, retirement account, because you're gonna be avoiding those high taxes now and then paying the low taxes later. So that's kind of the there's different ways to think about it. though. So you can pull out of a brokerage account, 40 $50,000 as an individual, as long as you have zero income without paying any taxes on it. Yep, that is a true statement. Now, as long as you have no other income, only your only income is your capital gains. Let's say you're you say you have 100. So you have a million dollar portfolio, and let's say it's paying you 5% a year to make the math, you that's 50 grand, right? So it's paying you 50 grand a year in income tax rate is zero. You have no other income though. If you have any other labor income or anything else, then you're going to have to start paying taxes on it. But like tax rate is zero. So you're like, why, you're like, why do you need a 401k when you can put into a brokerage account? And if you just grow it big enough, like getting that yield, and then you just don't pay tax on it. Like that's the current law. Of course the law could change, but that's the current law. So. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. One of the things that is uh, definitely a theme uh, of these conversations is just like, these rules are applicable to everybody, whether you're a billionaire or literally, you know, you're on unemployment, right? Every single person, these rules are available. It's just a difference of knowledge. And then also uh, the ability to execute some of these strategies, but that's something that, you know, once people are know about it, they can go execute it themselves. Obviously check with an accountant, et cetera. Um, Another idea that you've, uh, that you've got that I think is fascinating uh, is this whole idea of like buying the dip, maybe suboptimal. And I think it really gets at this whole uh, question of like, if I have a pot of money, uh, should I just put it all into the market today or should I try to dollar cost average over time? Uh, and I know you've done some work on this. Like, how do you maybe just like frame the question that you're trying to actually answer? And then what is the answer? Yeah. So let's use a more like ridiculous thought experiment, right? Let's say you had a hundred million dollars and you have to like preserve that purchasing power over the next hundred years. You have two options. You either get it all invested right now today or you put in $1 million a year for the next 100 years. So I know you already know the answer to this, right? Like, why would you wait? Why would you put in a million a year for the next 100 years? Inflation is going to eat you alive, right? Like, I'm, I'm very, I don't like holding cash. So as a result, like, it's obvious that you should put it in immediately. We'll take that general idea and generalize it down, right? If you wouldn't wait 100 years, you shouldn't wait 100 months, you shouldn't wait 100 days, right? Like, that because generally, you know, prices go up and to the right for asset classes over time. That's not true of every market all the time, but for most markets, most of the time, that's what happens for at least income producing assets. So because of that, you're not going to want to wait. And I've tested this in so many things, like putting the money in now versus waiting and putting it over time. And this is true. I've done this with gold. I've done this with Bitcoin. I've done this with, you know, international stocks. I've done this with the US stocks, et cetera. And all of them, it's better to like 
on average, like 70 to 80% of the time, it's better to start and invest now instead of waiting for dips and things like that. Because usually when you wait for these types of dips, the dips will happen. But by the time that dip comes down, that's at a higher price than you could have bought originally. I think one of the best examples of this is I actually started talking about this in early 2017. And people were like, oh, the market's too overvalued. I'm not going to buy. And since then, like the market's doubled. But even if you had bought like on the bot at the bottom in March 23rd, 2020, you still would have bought at prices like 7% higher than if you had just bought in like early 2017, which is kind of shocking. Like, even if you could perfect time the market and get the best dip possible, like three years after, um, you know, when I first started talking about this, you still would have bought at higher prices, which is kind of crazy to think, but that's kind of how dips happen, right? The big dips are, or dips are rare and big dips are incredibly rare. Yeah. And, so and it really why. goes to this whole idea of like, just like time in the market is more important than timing the market, which is, you know, a really mm-hmm. cute saying, but, but there is a ton of truth to this. And I think that that data kind of backs it up. Uh, if somebody is invested and they continue to grow their assets, another data point, uh, is this idea of only one in seven retirees are actually dipping into, uh, the principal six out of seven are actually uh living off of whether it's investment gains or yield what, what's going on there yeah so they did you know they, they've asked all these retirees okay are you actually selling down your principal so as you so let's say you have a million dollar account or even hundred thousand doesn't matter um are you selling down your principal in a given year so a good portion of them are are living on less than their investment gains and social security uh another portion is living just off their investment gains of social security and only one in seven are actually you know using all their investment gains or social security and they're starting to sell down their assets so it's one of those things where like we talk about this massive retirement crisis and all this is happening and of course don't get me wrong there are people who are in not in great positions right that's that i'm not going to deny that however to say that there's this massive retirement crisis it just doesn't come through in the data i think one of the most interesting pieces is like people think they're going to hit retirement and then run out of money. It's like, you're actually more likely to just keep getting richer. And like my favorite uh, data point is actually have some research done by Michael Kitsis. And he shows that, you know, whatever, let's say you have a 60, 40 portfolio. This is historically, I don't know if it's going to be true today, but like historically, if you had ran this 60, 40 portfolio, you're pearling 4% a year. You're more likely to 4X your wealth than have below your principal after 30 years. So if you start with a million after 30 years, you're more likely to have 4 million if you're following the 4% rule, then to have less than a million. So like retirees just keep getting richer and they don't, I don't think they realize that. So like your spending goes down and your wealth keeps growing. And so like people just keep getting richer and richer. And so I think it's, there's a lot more positive upside surprises in retirement than on the downside. So that's kind of my, my counter to, to a lot of those arguments. So this is interesting. And uh, I don't know if you've done this work yet or not, um, but what is the number that somebody would have to get to as a like, you know, pot of money, a portfolio value, et cetera, where they could essentially employ the same thing, but rather than wait till they're 65, if they could just get to the 4%, they would end up actually being quote unquote sustainable through the rest of their life. Is there like a, a magic number or a percentage or something that, that you think is, uh, once you get to this metric, if you can live on 4%, you're golden and you would never have to work again. Say I don't the four percent rule. Uh, I mean, they only tested over like usually thirty year time frame. So if you're like, hey, I'm thirty five, can I do that? Like, probably not. A better rule is called the crossover rule, or is like, okay, once your investment returns can like pay for your spending. So if you're spending five grand a month and you're earning five grand a month from your investment returns, like you probably can be okay there. But there is just vol. Like you're gonna get, you're gonna get vol. Like at some point, your assets are gonna decline and if your income's not sufficient to overtake that, there's going to be vol. So really you have to kind of get lucky. Like I think if you're 35 and you're like, you're, you have like five grand, let's say in investment returns every month and your spending's five grand and your spending doesn't move, but your investments keep going up. Like you could get lucky and go through a path or even with a decline in the future, you can be retired the rest of your life. 
but I think you're going to have to have a little bit of a buffer there for the ball. Like that's the only thing I would say. So crossover rules, what I would say. And so I can't give you an exact number because it's really dependent on your spending. It's always dependent on spending. Right. So that's everything. Yeah. One of the things that, that this reminds me of is I think in March of 2020, there was an analysis done kind of after the fact. Uh, and most of the people selling in March of 2020 on the retail side uh, were the older demographic, mainly because uh, the theory at least was in 2008, 2009, they saw, you know, uh, prices crash. And then it took three, four, five, six years till uh, we got back to uh, kind of th that price level. And many of them, just given that they're older, don't have as much time. And they're like, hey, I'm not going to wait five, six years. Like, you know, screw it. I'll take the 20% haircut on my assets and just get me out of the market. And I've got enough to, to live for whatever. Obviously, given the intervention in the market and it came flying back, that was a really bad decision. Uh, but mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about like psychology mixed with the inability to have a long time horizon. Like if you're just older, it changes the way that people seem to invest. Yeah, it definitely. Because like, yeah, I, well, someone once asked me, like, what do you how do you can how do you define a long term investor? And I was like, oh, it's just like time horizon. Right. But like you're right. At some point, once you're if you're 80, 90 years old, you don't have that time horizon in the same way. I think the only way to kind of think beyond that is to say, like, hey, am I investing for someone else like the next generation or something? And so if you start thinking of your time horizon in a much longer way, then you can still, I think, make more optimal decisions. Of course, like if you're like constrained by how much money you have and you're like, I'm going to run out of money, then yes, your your time horizon matters a lot more when you have um, less sufficient assets. Like that's that's where you're going to have to say, hey, I have to sell to get out. I'm going to take this 20% haircut because I can't take, I can't afford a, a bigger haircut in the medium term, basically. I think that's what's leading to that. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because what you essentially get is uh, you get people who maybe their entire life didn't actually time markets, right? Like part of the reason why they mm -hmm. built wealth was because they just kind of bought assets and and uh, and let them uh, continue to accrue value. But at some point, your mentality changes. And uh, I, I don't know if there's like a good rule. Like how do you control human emotion, right? It's like a question as old as time, but that ends up being more important almost than like what asset you bought 20 years ago and just haven't sold till today. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of that, that's especially true of spending. Like if you imagine you've been your whole life, you're a diligent saver, you're saving money over, you know, 30, 40, 50 year career. And then all of a sudden you have to go into like spending mode. That's why people don't spend down their principal. It's the same thing. Like they just don't do it. And like, even with like required minimum distributions, which is like the government requires you to take a certain amount out of these non-taxable accounts by a certain age, by like 72 or something. If you don't like a lot of these people end up taking this money out and they're supposed to spend it right or something with it and they just end up reinvesting it. So it's like a very funny thing where like you, the, you're basically just forcing the government, the government's forcing you to pay tax just so you can reinvest it again. So um, it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. When you think about this idea of uh, people's relationship with money. Um, I, I do think over the last maybe 15 years, again, it's a narrative. I don't know how true it is, but it feels correct, which is, uh, if you were middle-aged, let's say during the financial crisis, you got kind of punched in the face. Uh, and some people literally went insolvent. Some people just, Hey, this hurt, right? Uh, you then become a little bit less aggressive from an investment standpoint, even though in hindsight, Hey, you should have gotten right back into the market and benefited from kind of the recovery. You just, I, I lose money in the stock market. I don't want to do that. And then by the time that you finally started to invest, it was 2015, 16, 17, maybe even 18. And then you run right into the teeth of the uh, pandemic and COVID-19 in 2020. And again, the older folks, they're the ones who are selling people who are a little bit younger. Maybe they weren't selling, but they're probably not as aggressive. Like it just feels like there's been a lot of this uh, kind of external shock to investors how do you guys see, uh, you know, kind of across the financial industry, 
people worried about like when's the next big shock because they already experienced one. And there's like almost like a recency bias of like these are going to happen all the time versus like there actually is truth that they should be prepared for those things. Well, I mean, the only way to prepare for that type of stuff is diversification, right? And like risk management. That's what matters. Like if you're 100% stocks and you shouldn't be 100% stocks, that's a problem. Or if you're like, you know, high stocks, high crypto, high, like you can, there's a lot of risk assets out there and you can kind of set your risk level. But yeah, for me, it's like, you're right. This stuff's always going to happen. If it wasn't, you know, 2020 with the pandemic, it's going to be something else. Right now we have, you know, the Russian Ukraine crisis and the supply chain crisis going on. And I mean, one of my, you know, my, my colleague, Michael Badnick likes to say, there's always a reason to sell. And I always remember that because like, you can always, you can just look at the headlines and there's always a reason to sell. Like you can try this right now, go Google stock market overvalued and then put in a year like 2012, 2013, you will find plenty of articles that tells you why the stock market's overvalued. 2010, you could have said the same thing. Like there's always a reason to sell. There's always a reason to get out. And so all those people that had problems in 08, 09, et cetera, the reason they had problems is because they sold. Right. And I'm not saying that the market's um, going to go up forever. And that, you know, obviously there's going to be some event where, you know, some possible event, you know, centuries from now that like pot that causes, you know, the end of the United States or who knows, right. Anything like that can happen. But if we can't invest based or based on that type of like crazy outlier thing, right. It's like if the great depression happens that your portfolio is the least of your worries, right. We have to worry more about apocalypse, canned goods, guns, all that stuff. So like, it's almost like an upside call option. It's like a call option, right? It's like, if things go well, you're going to get rich. If they don't go well, it's not going to matter anyways. Right. So that's kind of how I look at investing, right. At least if you're in a broad based, like global index fund of some sorts, right. Or you own international stocks, us stocks, you own crypto, you own like all these different things um, in some sort of mixture that fits your risk profile. I I, um, I also think a lot about uh, uh, the bears, like the perma bears. You basically have to be betting on the inability for the United States economy to be durable over any you know ten plus year t- uh, time period. And I think that that makes people sound really smart, but like historically, obviously, it's been a horrible investment strategy. Uh, and then also, like, how many people really believe that? Forget the investment component. Like, is it more so they're just trying to time markets? And if we are in this, I don't know, 50 plus year bull market, uh, you know, everything just goes up and to the right. It's just to your, the point of your book, like, just keep buying, right? Like, like how do you think mm-hmm. about this idea of like, just keep buying? I mean, you wrote a whole book on it, right? So like, like is that yeah. literally the, the uh, kind of secret to this is like manage the risk, manage your cash position. And then other than that, just get invested and just chill. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is just like accumulation over time. That's a big piece of it. And I do talk about this more in the personal finance sense, like income matters. Obviously I can say, just keep buying, but if you don't have any income to just keep buying, it's just not going to work for you. So that's one piece of it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think with the perma bulls, like one of the, or sorry, perma bears, one of the things there, it's like, it, you know, it's seductive to be like contrarian. Like, trust me, like when I'm, when I come out here with an argument saying like, I don't max for 401k, that's contrarian. And I feel good about it. Like, and I, I like going against the crowd because I believe in my analysis, right? Just like the, those perma bears believe in their analysis. Right. And so I think that's, that's a thing. And of course it's seductive and it's cool. And like, and at the end of the day, it's the, you know, there's that phrase, like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to make money? And right. And so like, I do the most naive thing. Like, I don't know enough about business. I don't know enough about this stuff. I just own like a global portfolio and I let all that, you know, I like kind of let the, the economy do its thing. I let businesses do their thing. And I focus on doing what I'm good at. Right. And that's like data stuff. And I focus on my data stuff and I don't sit here and try and analyze balance sheets and figure out whether this business is going to be that business. Cause I don't think it's the best use of my time. So I think most investors and stock pickers, people like that should spend way less time doing that and should be doing the thing they're probably best at doing. And so that's my, my, my whole argument is find your edge and just focus on that instead of like trying to go and compete with people who are actually better than you at all these things. Right. I, I was so going like, to ask the 80th you, percentile. Yeah. 
what's in your portfolio? Like, like when you think about your kind of investment strategy, is it just low cost indexes or like, yep. h- how do you think about uh, investing? Yeah. So mostly low cost. I would say 85% of my portfolio is income producing assets as I define them, which is like low cost indices, which is mostly, you know, US stocks, international stocks, REITs. I have some bonds. I mean, even though bonds are doing terribly. And so I'm not not a big bond fan, especially now. And if they go negative yield, I'm even less, you know, like with negative yield and bonds, I'm not into that. And then I have, you know, a smattering of like, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, I have some physical art, and then I have some like private investments, which I, I mean, yes, those technically, those private investments are technically US stock, but because they're kind of private and small, and I kind of put them in a non-income producing, you know, asset in my head, right? So that's kind of how I break it out, right? And so I think it's really just about risk and stuff. Like I could have more of those other things, but like, I think on a risk perspective, you have to think about volatility and all that. And so I try to like have some things that are non-income producing and then something, and most of it is income producing to some degree. Got it. And then when you think about just given that you've done so much on the data, like when you think about managing income, expenses and investment, is there like a formula that you try to at least adhere to in terms of uh, ratios or like how much of income every year you want to go to investing? Like, how, how do you think about that stuff? I don't do that. And I kind of discuss this in the book. I might, I mean, my advice is going to sound very, like I copped out, but it's, it's truly the only way I think you can do it is just save what you can. And so it's almost like a, an overflow, right? So in certain times, like I've saved 40% of my income and sometimes I've saved like 4% of my income or even less. Right. So I think what you have to do because incomes are like more volatile now, like I bet, I think back in the fifties when like all the savings advice and stuff was coming out, like there was like a two, there was a one income household, like, you know, maybe the husband worked, the wife stayed at home. It was very stable, easy pensions. Now we have two income households households, people are doing gig economy stuff. So income's far more volatile. And I think to have like a fixed savings rule makes no sense. Like if you only save 20% of your income always, I don't think that makes sense. I think there's gonna be times when you have really high income and things are going well, and you should be saving way more than let's say 20%. And there's times where you might lose an income stream or something and you need to save less. So I, I'm more of the like, Hey, live your life and don't guilt yourself as much. And just kind of like, just when you can save more and when you can't save less, like kind of just do it based on like that. That's the only way I can do it. That makes sense for me. And so I don't, and I, I think it's also, as I said, less of a guilt trip. And I think we're, we guilt each other too much to like, oh, you have to save X percent. I think that's really tough to do. Well, one of the things uh, it reminds me of is it feels like the advice that maybe your or my grandfather or grandmother received uh, was great advice at the time. Like save, save, save. You can save your, your way to financial uh, stability. Um, I doubt that that's good advice now, just given this whole idea of inflation and, and kind of the way the world works. Uh, and so- what did your grandparents do though? They told you and I like, Hey, save, 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 save. And so there is almost this, like the passing down of knowledge. It's not so much that it's quote unquote bad advice. It's just bad advice for the current environment. And you almost have to retrain the way people think about, uh, their financial life because the environment changed and therefore you have to do something different. I'm assuming that you guys see this all the time when talking to folks is like, Oh, I was always told X during my life. Uh, but that's not necessarily the right thing that they should be doing today. Yeah, I think the the main thing, and this is why, like, even in, in the book, just keep on. I do not give you a specific recommendation. Like, you need to have twenty five percent this or thirty percent of that asset. I don't try to give specific recommendations because it's not about me telling you what to do. It's kind of me kind of teaching you how to think about the problem. And you're exactly right. Like, 
I say like, yeah, you should have some bonds for risk reduction, right? But what happens if bonds are negative yielding? Like then it's like, I don't even know if you should own that. You should just hold cash as risk reduction, right? Like I think it's always contingent on what's happening in the world. And you have to realize like things are going to change over time. I wish we can say like set it and forget it, but the problem is the world changes, right? You could have set it and you could have, you know, set it and forgot it like 20 years ago, but now that yields are dropping on bonds, like it changes how much of that you hold, what type of risk you want to take. And so I think that's kind of the important takeaway here is like, how do you think about this? And just the framing is, is important. So I agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk Bitcoin. Obviously the folks uh, who, who get super excited uh, about kind of the the digital world, crypto, et cetera, uh, tend to be a little bit younger. Uh, but I think more and more of maybe the Wall Street crowd, even the older crowd uh, are starting to pay attention because of things like inflation and, and various things that are happening in kind mm-hmm. of the legacy finance world. Where are you on Bitcoin uh, and crypto? Like it, don't like it. What have you done? Uh, so I own some of it and I, I think getting, I think getting off zero is important because like right now, I mean, you know, maybe 2017, you're like, okay, we had this one thing and it was like a one trick pony. But after it kind of came back again, I said, you know what? I was wrong on this. And so I recommend people get off zero, but I do think you have to think about it in terms of risk management perspective. I think more than 5% is like really risky for some people. And it's really tough. And so I don't, I know, I don't know how people hold more than 5% personally. So I have like probably three or 4% crypto. And it's tough for me to like, usually I would say just keep buying with everything, even crypto, but because it's so volatile, like I had 2% in Bitcoin and then and it ran up to like almost 10% of my portfolio because it just, and so I had to rebalance down a little bit because like, it's just doing so well. Right. So it's one of those things where like, it's not an income producing asset unless you're staking. And we, I don't want to get into that. It's like a bigger discussion, yep. um, but generally it's not an income producing asset. So like, I would say like, ha, have some get off zero, but like, I wouldn't have a large percentage because the swings are so large. And I think unless you're really prepared for those types of risk swings, it can be really difficult for you. So, I mean, honestly, like, you know, I'm not trying to here to pump my firm or anything, but like we have like a crypto product and it's like a, it's basically an index fund. And that's what I would recommend if I could create a perfect product, it would be like some sort of index fund of crypto. And that's what I try to get at. Right. It's like, I care about indexing. I just want to own everything because I may be wrong on Bitcoin. I may be wrong on Ethereum, but like, I think something in the space is going to do well. And there's going to be some use case and we're still trying to figure that out. So that's kind of my take on crypto. Yeah. I, I remember when you rebalanced and I, mm-hmm. I, of course, like elicited the, uh, the two schools of thought. <laughs> Right. Some people are like, oh, rebalancing is amazing and everyone should do it. And then the other school of thought is like, you idiot, you sold all your crypto, like whatever. Right. And so like maybe using that as uh, as one example of this debate of rebalancing, like how do you think about when you would rebalance versus not? And is it just based on percentage of the portfolio or is it kind of more like intuition and gut feel? Yeah. So normally I rebalance just like on a calendar year basis, but like I mean, I watched Bitcoin go from 8,000 to like 52, like pretty quickly. And I was like, okay, like this is like, you know, and I didn't sell all of it. I kept, I kept half of it, right. Given like, I I just wanted to move my allocation down. And so I was like, this is wild. And I just sold some of it. And of course, did I tell, I told people I rebalanced in the replies, but in the main tweet, I didn't. So it's just going to get more engagement by me just saying like, Hey, it's something crazy and making people think I'm like bearish or something and nothing. There's no bearish or bullish. It's nothing to do with, I'm just like, yo, the price raised, you know, the same thing would happen if us stocks doubled like tomorrow, I would be selling down U.S. stocks because like as in terms of an allocation, that's too much money. I would have to sell down my U.S. stocks, right? Even though I'm obviously a big fan of U.S. stocks. So it's one of those things where I'm always trying to keep things in balance to each other to some degree. So that's kind of my my takeaway there. 
that uh, that that makes so much uh, sense. Uh, the book that you wrote, um, one of my favorite parts of the whole thing uh, is actually just on the back cover. And I always tell people that uh, whenever you see a book, don't read the front cover and the back cover because it's all just uh, their friends pumping their uh, uh, their book or whatever. But uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy uh, said, investors new and old will benefit from Nick's practical approach to investing. And what I found fascinating about that is in one sentence, it hit on two key themes uh, that were really important. The first is uh, in finance, everything is made so complex. But this idea you have just like practicality and actually being able to implement things. Let's start there with just when you think about that, how important is it to have a plan and actually execute it, you know, with like perfection and, and super disciplined versus it's more of, hey, thematically, I want to follow this strategy, but I don't need to be, you know, every Tuesday at four o'clock, I go and I buy stocks and, and almost have this like super regimented uh, approach that some people may find unsustainable. Yeah, I think the the takeaway there is like, you know, we're not Jim Simons, we're not managing billions of dollars. And if you are managing billions of dollars, you kind of have to have that discipline because those little basis point differences will make a difference. But for you and I, like, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not going to talk about how much you're managing, but it's like, for most people, we're not managing enough money where that actually makes a dollar difference, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to spend all this extra time and how much more extra money you can earn from that, right? Like think about the number of hours people spend, like trying to beat the market. Like, let's say you had a $10,000 portfolio and you got a 10% return. That's a thousand bucks, right? But let's say you spend all this extra time, 500 hours to get a 20% return. Like, that's great. If you can sustain that over time, that's going to pay off. But but what's an extra 10% on $10,000? thousand bucks, like that 500 hours would have been better spent if you just, you know, had a part-time job or something, you know what I mean? So it's one of these things of like, how much does that actually matter and being perfect? And for most people, it doesn't matter until you have a lot more money. Cause that's where your that benefit actually that couple basis points will add up if you have a lot more money. So in the short run, it doesn't matter. Um, it could in the long run, but yeah, I say, don't worry so much about being perfect. That's why I don't give exact percentages and recommendations. And because you're never going to be perfect. Even when you have the quote optimal portfolio, when you solve it using like a, a linear optimizer, where you go back and find the highest, you know, return per unit risk portfolio in any given year, like something like one in four of your assets is going to be underperforming. So you're always going to feel like you're not doing perfectly, even when you do have like quote the perfect portfolio for a given time period. So it's just games we play in our head. I say, just get close enough and just kind of shoot for a general direction. I think the thematic idea is, is better than trying to be perfect because you'll never be perfect. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, I got two last questions for you. The first is mm -hmm. new and old Jim mentioned, uh, which makes me think about there's timeless investing advice. And then there's advice that's existed for a while. That's absolutely horrible in today's environment. How do you filter through what is the timeless investing advice versus like what should be uh, addressed or updated in the short term? I think things that need to be updated are things based on like I guess it's just because like there's new asset classes coming out. There's new information about, as I said, bonds, the yields have changed. So like things that were true, like a 50-50 portfolio could have made you a lot of money and did really, that was the, when the 4% rule was created. It was done with a 50-50 portfolio. I think now the 4% rule is really tough with 50-50, especially with inflation where it is and where bond yields are. So I think you have to kind of adjust a little bit based on kind of what's happening in the current environment. That's what's important. But the things that'll be timeless is like your timing strategy, right? You should not have a timing strategy. You should just buy, you know, as soon as you can, as soon as you're able to invest, just buy, right? That's like probably the best strategy. Of course, there's more risk there. But in the cases where you're like, oh, I should have averaged in, like when the market was falling, you're not going to want to average in. When you're seeing the market crash, you're going to be like, I'm going to wait it out. And then you're probably going to wait too long. So it, that's the thing. And even if you get it right, you know, even if your whole strategy of like, oh, I'm going to average in now, maybe that works now. But in the future, like on average, it's not going to work uh, over the long run. So over a long period of time, just 
and getting more invested sooner is going to be better. So I think of things like that, that are timeless. And I try to make this book as evergreen as possible. So I had to be like specific enough to be evergreen, but also vague enough such that I can't give a specific recommendation because it, there's no one recommendation that's going to work forever. Yeah. I, I obviously very difficult to do, but, uh, but you did a great job of it. Uh, the last data point that I want to talk about, which, uh, maybe will help people just chill out a little bit, uh, when it comes to, uh, trying to optimize all the, the, the minutia is, uh, if you had beaten the S and P 500, by 5% of the year from 1960 to 1980. So the 20 year period between 1960 and 1980, you outperformed the S&P by 5%. You would have made less money than if you underperformed the S&P 500 from 1980 to 2000. And so this idea of like, you could outperform or underperform, but some of this just may be uh, your returns are derived by like, when were you born? And like, what's the time period? Uh, explain one, just like, how do you think about this? And like, does any of this actually matter that we're optimizing for on, on kind of the edges? And like, literally, we just were, you know, fortunate enough to be born in a time where stocks went up into the right for, you know, 15 years. And like, we should just say thank you and move on. I mean, yeah, it's one of those, my, my, uh, my little catchphrase is don't pray for alpha, pray for beta, right? And it's like, beta runs everything at the end of the day, like, because if beta, if, if all the markets of beta is just, you know, the market generally markets are moving up, that's great for everyone. It's a good time. But yeah, you have to think about like, you know, how do you counteract that? You have to diversify, you have to like plan, you have to have emergency fund, things like that. Cause like, yeah, we might just go through a bad period and there's nothing you can do in the short run. I hope I would hope on average over longer periods of time, these things time to average out. So for example, 1960, 1980 looked bad, but then you got 19, 2000 right after. So even if you had a bad, you know, decade or two, that decade after it did really well. And I'm not saying that's always going to happen where there's always going to be this like mean reversion, but like that's happened so far and maybe that'll happen again. I don't know. I mean, international markets haven't done as well over the last decade. Or does that mean they're going to mean revert? I have no clue. I mean, there could, it could maybe not happen that way. So the main, the main takeaway is just like, try to be diversified, try to plan where you can. And then just, you know, you got to roll with the punches. Like that's how the world is, but there's not much we can do at certain points. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Nick, for those uh, who are just tuning in, wrote the book, just keep buying proven ways to save money and build your wealth, act smarter, live richer, which is frankly what everyone is trying to do. Uh, he's got a, a murderer's row of, uh, of uh, recommendations and reviews here. All five stars, by the way, of course, uh, Morgan Housel gives five stars. Uh, he's probably tired of getting beaten up on the internet by uh, Brent B. Shore. Uh, but uh, oh <laughs> uh, those baby photos, man, he, he wrecked him. Uh, I've, I've watched for the last couple of years as those two have, uh, have, uh, friendly debates over, uh, various things and it cracks me up every time. Um, yeah. where, where's the best place to send people to buy just on Amazon? I, I dropped the Amazon link in here, but is there any, uh, anywhere else that we should send folks? Oh, that's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If you're in Australia, Booktopia, there's like all sorts of like retailers out there. Harriman house, my publisher, whoever. So. Awesome. So anyone who, uh, who's interested, uh, I just dropped the, uh, the link in again, or, uh, or you can go follow, uh, Follow Nick on uh, Twitter. What what is uh, your tw- uh, dollars and data? There's right? it. Dollars and data. Yep. Yeah. That that's a uh, don't give that one up. That's a pretty. No, good, I'm, uh, I'm sitting on that one. Don't yeah. worry. It's prime real estate. <laughs> All right, buddy. I appreciate you uh, you coming on. I think uh, you've given a lot of folks things to think about uh, from not necessarily uh, blindly maxing out the 401k to uh, to also just keep buying as the as the book argues. Uh, so thanks so much for taking the time to do this, and we'll definitely have to do it again in the future. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And if anyone wants. Uh, you can re- feel free to DM me on Twitter. I try to answer every DM. So thank you. Awesome, buddy. All right. Sounds good. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. 
And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.